Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Pensions Expert fortnightly podcast. Christmas is coming, but there is still time for us to treat with the serious issues of pensions and politics. Our first topic today is so sensitive that I have been explicitly prohibited from making fun of it, so I shall simply say that the man with quite possibly the longest job title in the world, the UN's special rapporteur on the situation of human rights in the Palestinian territory occupied since 1967, has called on the LGPS to divest from what he calls the Israeli settlement economy. We will treat with this soberly and sensitively and seriously and talk the merits of this request. Next up, certain Christmas parties might be above suspicion, and nobody interested in investigating them, but the pensions regulator is at least doing its job. It's opened investigations into nine defined benefit schemes over funding concerns. With inflation biting and our recovery seemingly stalled, we'll ask whether this investigation will remain particular or whether we have cause to worry generally about scheme funding. Finally, hard though it is to keep coronavirus in perspective, there are objectively a number of bigger long-term issues that we cannot afford to avoid. The OECD has picked the strife heading our way as a result of ageing populations. It says there are no simple solutions. We'll ask whether there are any solutions at all. I'm Benjamin Mercer, Senior Reporter at Pensions Experts, and I'm joined today by Richard Butcher, Managing Director of PTL and recently departed Chair of the Pensions and Lifetime Savings Association, and by Ian Neal, Co-Founder of Aries Insight. And thank you both very much for joining me. Beginning abroad, Michael Link, and I'm going to have to say this again, aren't I? The UN's Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in Palestinian Territory Occupied since 1967 has called on the LGPS to divest from what he called the Israeli Settlement Economy. He asked them to conduct enhanced human rights due diligence for all companies listed on the Office for the High Commissioner of Human Rights' blacklist and beyond uh, that may be involved in the illegal Israeli settlement economy, he says, and then to divest from any of those holdings if those companies cannot give assurances that they have removed themselves from that economy. This is technically possible at the moment after the government lost a court case bought by the Palestinian Solidarity Campaign, which overturned a ban on local political boycotts, though the government has said it intends to bring in new legislation to re-establish that ban. Critics have suggested that the motives priming this obsession with the world's only Jewish majority state are somewhat less than Menschlich, pointing to the questionable aims of the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. Ian, I think I'll kick off with you on this one, if that's all right. Where do you stand on this? Would you be broadly supportive of LGPS having the power to conduct these divestment campaigns locally? I think it's important that pension schemes look at this issue through the correct lens. And the lens is ESG. It is uh, obligatory for trustees to assess their investments against environmental, social and governance criteria. And human rights falls squarely within the social category. But the overall umbrella term, I think, for ESG um, is sustainable. And investments in companies which are complicit in Israeli activities in the occupied territories are arguably not going to be sustainable against objective criteria. So this is what I would say. I would also personally go a little further and to suggest that arguments that have been placed by apologists for the Israeli government, this is an attack against the world's only Jewish majority state, is frankly a specious argument because it is not targeting Israel. It is targeting the Israeli military activities in the illegal occupation of Palestinian territories. And this is all besides the human rights argument, of course, that the destruction of Palestinian homes 
and settlements is uh, simply contrary to international law. Sure thing. So if I were to put one of the counter-arguments, for instance, Michael McCann, whom we've spoken to on this from the, the Israel-Britain Alliance, says that, okay, maybe in principle it's acceptable to say that LGPS can pursue a political divestment campaign. But in practice, when that divestment campaign is focused solely, for instance, on Israel, but there is no equivalent campaign by the LGPS to review investments in China or in other parts of the world where objective human rights are being violated to an astonishing degree, that makes the thing seem politically motivated as opposed to motivated by, say, sustainability or concerns for human rights. What would your response to that, that criticism be? On the one hand, this can be described as whataboutism. Uh, but frankly, this all stems from uh, Michael Link's report. And as you've identified, he is specifically focused on the Palestinian occupied territories. Now, if he was charged with investigating uh, the situation, for example, in Tibet, uh, he might well come out with similar recommendations about reviewing the activities of the Chinese government in Tibet. Numerous other cases could easily be adduced, but it's all really about investments that pension schemes hold and the assessment of those investments against the ESG criteria. Okay, I'll come on to you, Richard, uh, for now, if, if that's all right. So. Obviously, the the Supreme Court case did establish the right for LGPS schemes to consider localized sort of divestment policies. In your from from your view, is there much appetite in the LGPS to do this? And if so, is it a broad appetite across the entire spectrum of human rights concerns? And this sustainability comes into what Ian said, or, or is it a relatively particular concern? So I suppose first of all, I can't really speak about what's going on in the LGPS, but what I can do is speak about the wider population of pension schemes, because actually it's fundamentally the same issue for all schemes, irrespective of whether they're local authority or not. And and I agree with Ian on a number of the things that he said. I don't necessarily agree with all of it, but I agree with some of it. I mean, I should say as a preamble, I don't think we should get involved in the politics of this. Uh, Politics is, by definition, a subjective matter. There are arguments for, there are arguments against, there are those who are in favour of Palestine, there are those who are in favour of Israel. I don't need to disclose my politics on this to you, to anybody else. And and I don't think it's particularly important in the context of my fiduciary responsibilities as a trustee. So let's park all of that for the time being. What I agree with Ian on is that this is an ESG issue. And as an ESG issue, what I'm obliged to do as a fiduciary is to identify and then mitigate long-term financial risks so to do my best to ensure that the assets that I hold are sustainable for the duration that I need them to be sustainable for. That could be different in a DB and a DC world, but you know they will both have a duration that is appropriate. Having identified those financial risks, my judgment is going to be based on what produces value to my members. It is not a values decision to be made by me. In other words, it's not a moral judgment. This is entirely a judgment that is made on the basis of what value is best produced for my shareholders, even if that is potentially contrary to my own moral position, because as I say, my moral position is relevant in this context. So trustees, first and foremost, need to make this based on objective assessment of long-term financial risk. Now, Michael Links, the chap with the impossibly long title, he's an authoritative voice. There is no doubt about that, and I would hate to question his credentials but he is not my advisor. So 
if I were to make a decision about whether to invest or disinvest in, in an Israeli-based enterprise, I would first of all need to be satisfied on the basis of my own advice based on objective evidence before I make that decision. So I may conclude on the basis of that evidence and that advice to disinvest because it is a it potentially risks the value, long-term value that I hold for my members. But I may also decide to hold on to it because I get a better return as a consequence. So this is entirely done through the fiduciary lens, irrespective of my moral position, irrespective of my politics. It's about driving value for my members. Sure thing. Well, it's, it's a fascinating topic and we could spend the whole episode on it. But uh, as we have a couple of other topics to get to, I think we'll move on to happier or at least less contentious issues, shall we say. It's happier unless your pension scheme is running out of money. The pensions regulator has opened an investigation into nine defined benefit schemes over funding concerns. The move is part of a broader engagement initiative designed to encourage schemes to consider the risk that their sponsor covenant has weakened. Just 5% of the 411 schemes contacted said their covenant had not weakened, and additional 30 schemes were subjected to a more in-depth engagement exercise. Uh, these were the ones being deemed most at risk of a deteriorating covenant situation. And, you know, I'll come to you first on this one as well, if that's all right. So obviously, we have concerns about the, the health of sponsor covenants and scheme funding more generally. The stories about inflation coming out today are not going to be particularly good news to anybody. Is this a relatively small-scale operation by the pensions regulator, or is, it, or is it indicative of a wider concern? Well, it's difficult to say because I don't have a hotline into TPR's thinking. Um, I did notice uh, that David Fairs has produced a new blog today parking the DB funding code, or rather kicking it into late summer of 22, because they want to do things very carefully. So then there's a lot of controversy around at the moment. My impression has always been frankly, and it's a personal impression, that protection of the PPF is primus inter pares amongst TPR's objectives. And that's what is the most salient thing that jumps out to me uh, from this report. It, it's a concern that they will always have. But as to whether or not a scheme is underfunded is a somewhat controversial topic because it depends upon your assumptions. I suppose those assumptions are, again, not particularly clear if the funding, until we have the new funding code, at least. So David Fest did say that the, the current code is most definitely still in operation until the new yes. code is uh, is published. Uh, Richard, what, what's your take on this? Obviously, we have the stories of inflation as well coming out, and there are talk about, there is, has always been talk about what damage that could potentially do to scheme funding. I know there's a lot of schemes have engaged in fairly healthy levels of inflation hedging. But but on scheme funding more broadly, is this a wider concern, especially now with inflation biting and with the uncertainty of the lack of the new code, as Ian mentions? Yes, I mean, as we speak, Benjamin, this is hot off the press, but by the time this is listened to, it'll probably be old news, but the inflation rate's gone up to 5.1%. So, you know, it is well above the Bank of England's target, and, and that's bound to have an impact on the economy in due course. Yeah, I mean, this is quite an interesting story, in a sense perplexing, for reasons I hope will become apparent. So first of all, the regulator said that only 5% of trustees felt that their schemes were at risk as a result of the position of the economy. We did our own analysis of this at the beginning of COVID, uh, and the conclusion we came to was that around about 7% of our schemes were at risk. So those numbers aren't wildly inconsistent. Uh, and I'd like to think that we're a pretty sensible bunch who will have assessed it in a sensible way. Some of our clients have suffered through COVID. Some are going great guns through COVID and some have strengthened as a consequence of COVID. But the regulator is absolutely right. There is a risk here that there are 
some trustees who are failing in their duties to try to protect the interests of their members. There is also the risk that some trustees are doing a very good job, but are constrained by the lack of covenant that is backing them. So I agree with Ian, again, that this is all about trying to protect the PPF. But the reason it's an intriguing story is because I'm not sure to what extent they will protect the PPF. So there may be some trustees who are being negligent about this, who have got their head in the sand, who could be or should be going back to their employer now and saying, we need more money because we think your covenant is at risk. But in so doing, they actually run the risk of creating the very problem that they're trying to mitigate, i.e. they ask their employer for more money and they drive their employer to the wall. Even if they don't find that there are trustees who are being negligent, what are they hoping to, to do through an investigation? They might have a clearer view of the quantum of risk, which I think would be useful. But if you turn up at a pension scheme as a regulator and discover that it's underfunded, however you choose to measure that, and that the employer's covenant is highly constrained, so what? What can you do at that point in time? You can't ask the employer for more money because they haven't got any more money. Many years ago, just as a slight aside, I was dealing with a very, very small DB scheme. It had £900,000 worth of liabilities, but it only had £500,000 worth of assets. It was for a registered charity. And by the time I got to them, their sum income was the total of the £5 collected by the chief executive's mother as people visited their garden. So, you know, I couldn't ask them for more money. I couldn't ask them for anything because they had nothing. So in a high constrained environment, there's not actually much you can do. So it's intriguing, but I, I wonder what the regulator is going to find other than a, a clearer quantification of the risk. Sure thing. Well, in that case, um, we are all getting old. Our bones are creaking and our hips are aching and police officers are looking disturbingly young these days. It's a major problem, however, for pension schemes, this aging population business. And for retirement generally, old people are quite expensive. And the longer they live, the more expensive they get. And people stuck in the middle are in the unenviable position of having to support their children for the first 30 years of their lives and their parents for the last 30 years of theirs. Several countries around the world have taken steps to address this issue. And the OECD noted that in many cases, however, reform packages have come with political trade-offs, such as relaxed rules around early retirement, whilst in other countries, government backtracked and opted for gradual change instead of ambitious reforms. They warned that there are no simple solutions to the problem of uh, aging populations and Richard, I'll come to you first on this one. Um, is it possible to quantify the exact scale of this problem? We'll try and stick to the UK in terms of population size. But in terms of the, the, the effects that this actually has on long-term retirement planning and the cost it has to pension schemes, it's a big issue. But is it quantified? Yeah. Well, I mean, there is a way of quantifying it. You can make assumptions and model it. But you might argue that we've not been very good at that in the past. And, and that's why we've got huge DB funding holes. So, of course, it's possible to quantify it. You just make a set of assumptions, but it's an incredibly complex matter. It's a fascinating subject to debate in trustee meetings, or certainly I think so, because longevity mortality patterns aren't universally applied. They're different in Guildford to Bolton. They're different between higher earners and lower earners. They're driven by all sorts of different factors, and there's some really interesting stories you can use to illustrate that point. So it is possible to quantify, but it is only an estimation. Generally, though, the trend is that we are living longer and that creates a problem for us. If you haven't made a prudent assumption about the extent to which our population is aging, then you are likely to have a bigger DB funding hole than you were previously expecting to have, because the longer people live, the longer you have to pay their pensions. 
But that's the principal risk to DB schemes. And by and large, we've been pretty stung by this in the past. So I think we've learned our lesson and we tend to take fairly prudent assumptions. The slight fly in the ointment to that is that there could be some fairly radical events in the pipeline that could significantly improve longevity. So we're making great strides forward with cancer treatments. Uh, And if, for example, they came up with a magical treatment for cancer, and bear in mind, there's not one cancer, there's hundreds of different types of cancer. But if they found a way of, of, of fixing one of the major cancers, then life expectancy could go up quite significantly. And so hence, you know, we may have those DB funding holes yet. There's a different set of risks, though, in relation to DC. Uh, and let's not forget about DC, because a very large number of people are, are in DC pension schemes. The first and foremost risk is one around adequacy. The longer people live, the longer they've got to draw out their money. And if they have to draw their money out over a longer period of time, that means that it's going to, they can only draw, they can draw out less over that period of time. They draw out the same amount over the total time. So therefore, the the periodic amount that they can draw out reduces. And we know already that DC pension schemes aren't producing adequate incomes in retirement. So the greater the age of the population, the greater that risk is. So we need more contributions to go in. We also haven't yet found a, a sensible way of investing money. Freedom of choice has allowed people to withdraw money over a period of time. And we've changed our investment strategies to accommodate that to the commonly used to and through methodology. So you retain some risk because you can invest it for longer. But what we haven't yet is refined that idea to try and give us some end date because all pensioners will die. So we don't want risk on the table right when they're right at the very end. But there's another risk as well, which I think is often under considered, and that's the risk of vulnerability. So vulnerability, our members are going to be increasingly vulnerable. As they get older, they become increasingly vulnerable. And that means that it's more difficult for them. Your cognitive abilities decline, amongst other things. And that means that you're less able to make sophisticated decisions. So drawdown creates a very significant risk to DC schemes where you have an increasingly vulnerable population of members. How do you know that they're making the best decision on the pace of which to divest? And we need the systems and processes in place to ensure that we can properly support that population of vulnerable members. So, yeah, it's a big problem. It's a great thing as well. You know, wouldn't it be great if we can all live to 120 in a fit and healthy way? But we do have to find a way of paying for it. Yeah, fit and healthy way being necessary qualifier. Ian, just to come with you finally on, on this topic then, obviously, uh, Rich has mentioned that some of the systemic problems, particularly in defined contribution. I know the, the OECD recommends things like uh, auto adjustment mechanisms. And of course, we've got new models coming through with CDC and all the rest of that. So there are other ways of, of perhaps making up the shortfall that the DC is currently producing. But Generally, if you were to give me like a two-minute answer to the problem of overpopulational living people, people living too long, what what would that answer be beyond what Richard put out already? Well, very briefly, I think there are two or three points that came out of this report for me. One is the very interesting recommendation that long-term savings arrangements combine a savings account earmark for retirement and a savings account for emergencies. So, of course, that rang a bell with Nest and JARS. And there's a very interesting initiative going on there, which actually I, I'm very encouraged by. That's one thing. The other um, key point that they drew out was that contributions have been falling uh, from the self-employed. And as the self-employed are increasing as a proportion of the, popula- the working population, 
particularly under the impact of the pandemic. This is quite serious, I think, and this is probably the thing that the government really needs to get to grips with in the context of auto-enrolment. The OECD's figures, by the way, um, are quite complementary about the UK in the context of success of auto-enrolment, but unfortunately they, they make a small but significant error because they've attributed the uh, impact of the 8% contribution rates rising from 3%. They base it on an assumption that is always 8% of total earnings, whereas, of course, it's very often qualifying earnings, which is considerably less. Um, so I, I think that that's also significant. Yes, no, I know the self-employed point of coverage did drop from 20% to 16%, didn't it, I think, between 2012 and 2020. But um, so something for my mother to worry about, in fact. I'll let her know. I think that that, that brings us toward the end of the programme. There's time, I think, just about for the Always a Pensions angle. And since it's coming up for Christmas, I'm sure there are some puns relating to Christmas films or something along those lines. Any offerings from either of you? Oh, I've got a few films that I'm looking forward to to, to watching. I mean, there's the perennial favourite, Love Actuary. Then there's the It's a Wonderful Life, Time Allowance, Saving Private Pensions, uh, Passablanca. I think I'll stop there. One of my colleagues was reminded of the film The Night Before Christmas when perusing the recent Conditions for Transfers regulations. That, that I'm having to cover that. That is a nightmare before Christmas. I'm glad I haven't had it this week. Uh, my own offering is not as well, actually. I don't think, no, this offering doesn't make sense unless it's in the context of the aging population one. But then I don't have to change the title of the film, which is just Die Hard. But that might be a little bit dark. Um, <laughs> anyway, I think that brings us to the, the close of the program. So thank you very much to Ian and to Richard for joining us. It's the last one before Christmas. We will be back possibly before the new year, but otherwise we will see you in the new year. Have a Merry Christmas, everyone, and a Happy New Year if we don't see you before. And uh, we hope to see you again very, very soon. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.